0: Envy, jealousy, and comparison. I, I know that I'm not the only one in the room that at times has failed to look up and in. Instead, it, we, we fail to look up and in, and instead we look right and left in order to get our value. So instead of looking in and up, what we do is we look right and left in order to get our value. And that's Russian roulette, because what happens when we look right and left instead of in and up to determine where we are in life is we get stuck in something that I call the land of Ur, Better, bigger, fitter, thinner, richer, smarter, importanter. Now, the problem with that, <clears throat> the problem with that is, is that if you get stuck in the land of er, there's always an est. Let me tell you what I mean by that, okay? So let's say you want to be richer, and then you succeed at being richer. Are you richest? not even close. So when we get our value from looking right and left, no matter where we find ourselves in that line, there's always going to somebody be this-er than us, and there's always going to be somebody less-er than us. And so what, what we could do, there's always going to be someone smarter, but then the problem with that is there's always someone dumber. There's always someone fitter, but the problem with that is, is there's also someone fatter, right? It, there's always someone richer, but there's always someone poorer, which all that will do then is at best case it makes us feel superior to those, of, to those people on our left, and it makes us feel inferior to those people on our right. And so that is not how God ever intended for us to get our worth. God intended for us to get our worth by looking... <laughs> Woo! God intended for us to get our worth by looking in and up instead of right and left. And I want to talk about that today because envy and jealousy will destroy... Your life, And what you find is that envy is so common to man that it shows up very early in the biblical narrative. It actually shows up in the first relational story ever. Let me show you this. This is in Genesis chapter 4. <clears throat> this is what it says. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept the flocks and Cain worked the soil. Obviously, the story is skipping a whole lot of details there, right? So she gives birth, and the next thing you know, one's working the soil and one's keeping the, 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 the flocks, right? So evidently, Abel is a herdsman and Cain is a farmer. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. So Cain brought some of it, right? But, but Abel also brought an offering, the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, I want you to notice the difference there is that one brought some of the fruits of the ground, And the other brought the first portions of the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. So one guy is bringing the best of the best of the best of the best of the best. best, And the other one is just bringing some of the fruit of the ground. Now, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Evidently, Cain is not happy about the Lord's favor on one instead of the, the other. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will it not be accepted?" But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it, which is actually the first time in the Bible God goes absolutely Dr. Phil. He's like, listen, here's the deal, right? What you're, what you're flirting with here is a disaster. This is not an innocuous thing, Cain. If you, if you don't deal with this, it is knocking at the door, and it is not something that will just overlook you. This is something that desires to eat you alive. You have to get this thing Right? This envy in your heart towards your brother, you have got to get this thing right because it is not something that plays around. This is something that will hurt you really, really, really bad. Now, a couple of observations about this passage. Uh, uh, number one, next one, all the, at, at this time in history, there are no regulations for the offering. Nothing's been written down yet. This is way, 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 way before scriptures have even been written. How's Cain supposed to know what to bring? What's he supposed to do? How's Abel supposed to know what to bring? Are, are we supposed to conclude that God prefers meat over vegetables, right? Is that, is that what we're supposed to conclude that God wants? God wants meat? He doesn't really want vegetables? Is that, is that what's going on here? The, the problem with that is is later in Leviticus, vegetables are presented as, a, as an acceptable offering if you're a farmer, which makes total perfect sense. The issue isn't the content of the offering. How would they have known what to bring? What the rabbis teach is that the issue was the was the state of their heart. That Cain was bringing some of the fruit of the ground, but Abel had got his head around generosity and he was bringing the fat portions from the firstborns of, of his flock. And, and I, when, I was a, when I was a kid, my Sunday school teacher taught me that God accepted Cain, ex- sorry, accepted Abel's offering because it had blood in it, but he didn't accept Cain's offering because it didn't have blood. Well, that has nothing to do with this. This is not a sin offering at all. This was something called a tarum offering, which would have been a very small portioned offering that at this time in history would have witnessed their father as the spiritual head of the household. The issue isn't what the offering was, the issue was the condition of the heart of who was offering it. Abel offers the best portions of the fat portions of the firstborns of his flock, but Cain only offers some of the fruit of the ground. And God's like, you know what? I, I've got to go with the guy that has his heart around generosity. But notice when God confronts Cain, he does not confront his offering. He confronts his mood. He confronts his attitude. He confronts his temperament. He says, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are you angry and why is your face downcast?" Now, if you're a mother or a father, or if you're a, or if you're a leader in any way, you understand what's going on here. Have you ever come in and you see uh, you see one of your kids and there's obviously something wrong, and you go you go, "Hey, hey, sweetie, what's the matter?" And they say nothing, and everything in you wants to go. Well, then tell your face that honestly. Like like if what's going on in your heart is what's going on in your face, there's a real problem here, and. If desires to eat you alive, you've got to get this thing straight. If what's going on in your face is any evidence of what's happening in your heart, we got a real, real problem. God warns Cain that the attitude that he's seeing on his face will lead him to sin. And it's not innocuous sin. It is sin that desires to eat you alive. It seems, let's say it this way, it seems that God is more interested in the postures of our heart that lead to sin rather than individual sin. Like, instead of focusing on individual sin, what God does is God wants to get the heart right. And the idea is is that if we get the heart right, then the sin issue will take care of itself. And so God says, why is your face downcast? Why are you so angry? Now, if you've been around church at all and you know your Bible at all, you know this story doesn't end well. Here's the end of the story. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This envy led Cain to committing an awful act of violence. Now, a couple of observations about this. Next. Envy and comparison lead us to violence. What you find in this story is a normally rational person finds himself rationalizing extreme violence because of undealt with envy and comparison in his heart. Envy and jealousy and comparison lead us to rationalizing things that we normally would not rationalize. Normally, compassionate people will rationalize hurting other people when we don't deal with jealousy and envy in our heart. When we think that someone else has something better, it leads us to envy and violence. This happens gradually, and it's not something that we can deal with lightly. This is something that we must deal with because it's crouching at the door and desires To have us. This is not something that can be played around with. What we'll see in our own lives and in the scriptures is this. Is that the times in our life where we let envy, jealousy, and comparison spiral out of control are the exact times in our life that we have justified being violent toward another person. And you know what? We can all think of times where we did it. And we can all think of times where it happened to us. And when it happens to us, it is not fun a few a few years back um, I was invited to a church um, to minister for the first time and in my opinion it's one of the greatest churches in Australia it is just awesome and it it was it's a relationship now I've been going there five years in a row Uh, it's a relationship now that that I'm so glad I have but I almost didn't have it the only the the only reason I have it is because the pastor that church is a man of integrity and honor and was willing to call me and have a courageous conversation and here's why Another pastor called him, a guy who has never met me in his life. I've never met him either. And he said to this guy, he said, I don't know how you're having Shane Willard here. He cost $10,000 to leave his house right? Well, of course, the guy on the other end of the phone panics, and instead of just sending me a quick email and canceling me, he actually had integrity, and he called me, and this is what he said. He said, Shane, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I said, bro, we've never even met. Whatever you did, it's fine, okay? I'm serious. Let's just start on a fresh. Whatever it is, you are totally forgiven. He said, no, no, no. He said, when I booked you... I did not think to ask what your fee is, right? So so I didn't think to ask, and I'm just telling you, I just found out what your fee was, and I'm telling you, we don't have it. There is no way we can give you 10000 U.S. dollars to show up. There is just no way. And I feel so embarrassed because I didn't think to ask, would you please forgive me for not asking, and then would you please come for less than that because we've told everybody you're coming. But honestly... Honestly, I need, you, I need you to forgive me. And I said, bro, I don't charge a fee. I've never charged a fee. Not one time. I've preached in Tokoroa, okay? I don't charge... I don't charge fees, right? right? I go to places because people matter, and that's why I go to places. And, and this is how I make my living. And yes, I want you to do your best, and I'll do my best, but my goodness, I don't charge a fee. Whoever told you I charge a fee, listen, there's a word for that. It's Latin, bulimus crapimus, okay? Like, you, you, you need to go check out what that means, because I'm just telling you, that is not, that is not the case, and we ended up becoming very good friends. And I asked him, I said, who told you I charged a fee? And he said, oh, nobody. I said, well, have I ever met that nobody? He said, no. I said, is that other nobody a traveling preacher that thought he might could get the booking if I wasn't there? He goes, maybe. And I'm like, you know, this is, this is, the, very, this is the very thing where a normally rational person rationalizes violence on another person because of envy, jealousy, and comparison. It's just not Good. Let, let's say it. Let's say it another way. This is um th- this is not an isolated incident. Um, Cain and Abel um is, is the first incident, but it's not an isolated one. You, you see, very uh, very soon after that, you see a lady named Sarah. Sarah was um Abraham's wife, and um she gets promised to, to be the bearer of Abraham's son. Abraham doesn't believe it because she's very old. So Abraham sleeps with his um with his servant a, a lady um a, a lady named uh, what's her name. Yeah, Hagar. Yeah, so uh, so uh, he sleeps with Hagar. Hagar gets um, Hagar gets pregnant, and then Sarah realizes. Sarah realizes. Here's the deal. No matter what, I'm not going to be able to give birth before Hagar, and so no matter what, Hagar is going to give birth before me. She's going to be the bearer of the firstborn. And a normally compassionate, rational person rationalized banishing a woman into the ancient Near Eastern desert. Now, when you you banish a woman into the ancient Near Eastern desert pregnant, what is she going to have to do to live? She's going to have to prostitute herself. This is excessive violence that was birthed out of envy. Another one is Jacob and Esau. Jacob, Jacob tricks Esau out of his entire inheritance because he's jealous because his dad likes Esau more. You see it again with Joseph. Joseph's brothers sell him into ancient Near Eastern slavery because his father gave him a coat and didn't give the rest of them a coat. How petty can you be? normally rational, compassionate people rationalize excessive violence when we don't deal with envy, jealousy, and comparison in our heart. They looked at their brother, he had a coat that they didn't have, and they rationalized selling him into Middle Eastern slavery in the ancient world over a coat. And here's the lie, here's the problem. Envy gets us to believe That if we get rid of the person, somehow we'll get what they have. And it's never true. When Joseph's brothers got rid of Joseph, did they suddenly become in more favor with their father? No, they just ensured that their father was going to live in agony and grief for the rest of his life. When Sarah got rid of Hagar, was suddenly she going to be? She was going to bear Abraham's firstborn? No, she just banished a woman into the ancient Near Eastern wilderness. When we, when we act out in violence, we think it will take care of the problem, but it never ever does. Envy and violence never get us what we're looking for anyway. It promises something, Can't deliver. You you see it again with Saul. There was a guy named David. David killed a giant. Remember the story, right? He becomes a national hero, and he should. He would have saved Israel countless resources fighting an unnecessary war. He becomes this national hero, and Saul gets very jealous of of David's favor with people, and he tries to skewer him with a spear after employing David to play a harp to soothe his soul where the soul was in agony because of his jealousy around David. This was just unthinkable, and he misses. And once again, the lie is, if Saul skewers David and kills him, is Saul suddenly more popular with the people? No, he would have martyred the guy that that he was jealous of, which would have only made him more of a hero. Envy promises something you can't deliver. And here's the thing. What you find is Saul, who was a very capable, normally rational human being, rationalized excessive violence because of envy, jealousy, and comparison. What you see in that story is the leader of Israel ends up spending a, quite a long time chasing one guy around a cave in, instead of leading the country. Envy, jealousy, and comparison gone undealt with leads us to rationalizing extreme violence. There's a... Um, there's an ancient Jewish parable, it's a, it's a rabbinical parable, that doesn't end up in the Bible, and nor am I saying it should, I'm just saying it does illustrate the point well. This is an ancient rabbi's parable around... The power of envy in our life. Here's how it goes. He said there was a king, and there was two subjects that were ruining the kingdom. One subject was greedy, and the other subject was envious. And so the greedy subject was doing all he could to hoard and hoard and hoard and hoard and hoard. And, hoard. and the envious subject was doing everything he could do to outdo the greedy subject. So you had two subjects ruining the kingdom because one guy was trying to hoard everything, and the other guy was trying to outdo the one who was hoarding everything. So the king called the greedy subject and the envious subject to his presence. He said, Hey! Tardy, of you guys carrying on like this. It's ruining the kingdom. So here's what we're going to do. Whichever one of you speaks first, whoever speaks first, can have whatever he wants. The entire kingdom is at your disposal. You can have whatever you want so long as you're okay with me giving the other person twice as much, right? So whoever speaks first gets whatever they want, but the other one's going to get a double dose of it, right? Well, this plays right into the greedy person's hands. So the greedy person just says, listen. I'm not speaking first. Because no matter what he says, I'm going to get twice of it. So go ahead, bro. You can have at it. So the envious person is in a dilemma. The entire resources of the entire kingdom is at his disposal, but no matter what he asks for, he has to be okay with the, with the king giving the greedy person twice as much as him. And the envious person could never get okay with that. So here's what the envious person did. After lots of deliberation of, of wondering what could I ask for that I'm okay with the king giving the other person twice as much, the envious person said, king, if I can have whatever I want, I want you to pluck one of my eyes out, right? Which, of course, would have led the other person blind. He would have lost both of his eyes. And the point of the parable is, is that envy is so is so powerfully connected to violence that the entire kingdom can be at your disposal, and you would still do harm to yourself to see someone else hurt worse. That is the power of envy in our life. Now, now a couple. Let's, let's make a working definition of this. Um, next slide. Envy is desiring some quality, status, power, success, or happiness that another person has. That's what it is. But, but it's more than that. It's not just desiring what they have. It's desiring them to fail or suffer because of it. This is that really dark part of us that occasionally Google searches people's names, hoping to see that they're in trouble. It's that. This is why... There are websites dedicated to the demise of Brian Houston, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, people like this. There's websites dedicated to their demise. That's why. Envy. They want want what they have, but they also want to see see them suffer because of it. And you know what? If envy wasn't so widespread, those websites wouldn't be in business because no one would be looking at them. Um, Envy is not about the object. This is so important. Envy, Envy is not about the object. It's about the person. Envy sells the lie that if you get rid of the person or if you hurt the person, somehow you'll get what they have. And the truth is, is you're not going to get what they have because it wasn't intended for you. Let's say it another way. Envy is widespread because it's the easiest to hide and the hardest to admit. Like, Like the church years ago gave us the seven deadly sins. Of the seven deadly sins, envy is the most widespread because it is the easiest to hide and it is, in fact, the hardest to admit. Like if you have a small group of friends and you guys participate regularly in your redemptive process, which you should, And you come to your small group of friends and you say, guys, because we're all fully devoted followers of Christ here, I need to confess some darkness in my heart because I want to get it dealt with. I just want everybody to know I struggle with gluttony. Well, if gluttony is your issue, trust me, you're not surprising anybody, right? Everybody's like, oh, gluttony, really? Your blood type's gravy. No kidding, right? Right, and we we just sort of... We just sort of overlook that. We're like, oh, yeah, people overeat. This is New Zealand. Don't worry. Don't worry about it that it's it's actually strictly forbidden in Scripture 25 times more than homosexuality. Don't worry about it. We just overeat in New Zealand. That's what we do. We just overlook gluttony. No problem. No problem. If, if someone said, hey, I, I struggle with pride, the, the response would be, well, welcome to the human race. Occasionally, we think more of ourselves than other people. Or if you said, oh, I, I struggle with a bit of lust, people would say, well, welcome to the human race. Everybody has a wee lust every now and then kind of thing, right? And if, if you said, well, I struggle with every now and then. People say, well, you need to get that sorted, but honestly, that's sort of normal sort of thing. But if you said to a group of people, I struggle with envy, there's something creepy about that. People would be like, oh, envy, oh man, we need to stay away from you, right? Because envy is, envy has anathema to it. We don't want to admit it, so we hide it. And when we hide it, it goes undealt with. And when it goes undealt with, normally compassionate people will rationalize excessive violence because of it. Maybe we could say it this way. Envy is the revelation about our darkest side. It's that part of us that secretly celebrates when we see other people in pain. It's that. That's, that's envy. That's envy. Let, let me see if I can illustrate this. And, and you girls will understand this a little bit better than guys. And it's not because girls struggle with envy more than guys. It's just this illustration is, is uh, given to, to girls. It, here's, here's, girls will understand this. Here's the thing. You, you ladies, do you guys remember junior high? Remember when you were 13, right? And, and, and do you remember... Some of you will. If you, if, do you remember the girl in junior high that developed one year before everybody else? There's always the one girl, right? So, so most people develop here, but then there's that one girl. She was sort of like the first fruits, right? She was like, okay, she's the one that is blossoming first, right? And, and what happens to that girl? She's in sixth or seventh grade, and she's starting to develop before anybody else. And what happens to that girl? She becomes the most hated girl in the whole school by the girls. Why? Because she's developing early, and she's getting all the attention, right? She's getting all the attention from boys. Why? Because she's developing early. And you're going to bed at night, and you're like, please, God, please hurry. Please, like, like please, please, Mom, honestly, honestly. I mean, is, is there a little bit there, right, right? And you're doing this, but but you know the girl at school, she's developing early, and she's getting asked to the junior high dance, and you're going to have to ask your cousin to take you because none of the guys are interested in you because they're lining up for her. And you actually grow to hate her because you're envious because she developed her body uh, before yours. And so she becomes the most hated girl in high school. She's blonde. She's curvy, she's pretty, she's blue-eyed, she gets all the attention, and you just ever more hate her. But you can't say out loud you hate her, it's just envy inside, and that's where all the gossip and slander comes from. Here's what happens, right? So now you're 45 years old, and, and, and and you happen to run into her at the grocery store, you know, 25 years after high school. You happen to run into her, and she's 70 kilos overweight, and nothing's in the right place, and she didn't even bother not to wear sweatpants out, and something inside of you is like, yes! That's right, that's right. You peaked in high school, oh yeah. That's dark stuff. But you know it's true. That's why you're all laughing. This is why, this, is, it, this affects all of us in different ways. And, and you know what exacerbates it? You know what makes it so much worse? Facebook. L- let me tell you what Facebook is, okay? Facebook is voyeurism for people's greatest side. That's what it is. So if you go home this afternoon and you think, I wonder how Johnny's doing, right? What would you do? You would go to Facebook and look up Johnny, right? And what are you going to find? Are you going to find photos of Johnny's real life? No. You're going to find photos of Johnny's best possible side. That's what you're going to find, right? Here's what you'll find. You'll find Johnny standing next to his new BMW. Oh, check out my new babe, right? It's my new BMW, right? I got what? Got rid of one girl. Got, no, it's right. So he'd have, he's standing next to his BMW. Everybody posts the picture of the new BMW. But what don't they post? They don't post the photo of the monthly payment where they're paying 8% interest on something losing 50% of its value in three years and wondering why they're broke. They don't post that. What else do they post on Facebook? They post pictures of two-year-olds playing and laughing. You'll never see a photo on Facebook of two-year-olds screaming at 2 a.m., Get up! <laughs> never. Never. They post the new house. Hey, we're standing in front of our new house. They don't post the mortgage. They don't post that, right? What, what do you see on Facebook? You see pictures of me and my hubby out celebrating 10 blissful years together, Right? And when you see that, everything inside of you goes, Dah. but you click like it anyway. Why? Because you're supposed to like it. But you know what I know. You don't buy it. You know they're posting date night, not fight night. That's what they're doing. And so what happens is, is, is this creates an environment for envy because what we do is we look at other people's lives and we go, boy, I'd like to have that perfect marriage and those perfect never screaming kids and a perfect house that doesn't cost anything. And that perfect being, oh, I'd love that life, but that's not their life. It's voyeurism for what they want you to think their life is, but it ain't real. And, and then, and then there, because of Facebook, there's actually something now called, ready? Meta envy. Literally, envy about envy. Here's how it goes. I used to think of myself as a young adult, but I just turned 40, and now I'm realizing I'm not really a young adult anymore. And I realize I'm not a young adult when I hang out with young adults when they start talking about texting their BFFs and stuff. I'm like, what the heck's going on here, right? Right? And so, but here's the thing. These are real things. What happens is, evidently, amongst the young adult culture, they'll go out to eat, and they're under the delusion that everybody in the world wants to see the picture of the burrito they just bought, Right? 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 And so here's what they do, right? So one takes a picture of their burrito, and the other takes a picture of their Thai green curry. And then there's this unspoken competition about who's going to get the most likes of this. And you actually have envy about envy. You have envy about who gets the most likes, because your picture was actually better than their picture, but their picture is getting more likes than you, and you have envy about that. Are you kidding me? And all this does is it leads us to justifying violence. It leads us to this. Maybe, let me see if I can get, help us get our head around this next one. The problem with envy is it's so complicated. There's all kinds of different pecking orders, right? So, so one, you have a physical pecking order. Physical pecking order starts about age six, and it ends at uh, death, right? So, so about six is when you start noticing that, that people look different. People, uh, people are thinner, bigger, smarter, you know, muscular, whatever. And that, that ends about death. Then, of course, you have talent, the, the talent trap. So talent and success without considering the price they paid. So, so we look at successful people. We go, oh, I just want their life. You have no idea what they paid to get to where they are. People have told me back at my table before, man, I'd love your life. Really? I slept in my own bed 27 days all year last year. 27 days. Sometimes rude people think they have the right to ask me personal questions. Let me just go ahead and set that straight. You don't, right? But here's the deal, right? Sometimes rude people think they can ask me personal questions, and they'll say something like, why aren't you married? First of all, rude. Second of all, second of all, who would marry me? What's my pickup line to a woman? Hey, see you in a year. <laughs> in 362 days, baby, I'll be back. Right? What? They have no idea the price I've paid to be where I am. No idea. They're envious about something they have no clue about. And if I didn't exist, they wouldn't have what I have because they're not willing to pay the price I paid. No way. Uh, Or Education in social circles. Like the the belief that if I just had a few more letters behind my name, I'd feel better about myself. And look, I am all for education. I, I am... Highly educated myself, but here's here's what I would say very clearly. Education's a good thing to have, but if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it, right? It'll never change how you feel about yourself, right? So, right, so, so we say. So, so we say, oh, what about that table? Oh, oh there's, there's people who got invited to that table, and I'm smarter than those people, but they got invited to the table I didn't get invited to. I wish I was invited to that table. Here's the thing. Getting invited to that table, it's fine, but if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. If you got invited to that table, you'd still feel the same about yourself as you always did, right? And so we compare. We, we compare things like spouses. Like, have you ever lost or diminished the value of the wife you do have because you, you, you saw someone else that was prettier? And here's the thing, if you, if, you ended up with, if you left your wife and ended up with the prettier one, you'd realize that in about four days, you'd be so tired of her high-maintenance-ness that you'd be begging for your wife to come back. Because if you end up with that high-maintenance woman, you're gonna, all you're going to do is pray to God for a comet to come to earth to bring you sweet relief from her, and, and, that, and, and that's all. And what, what you've done is, is you've devalued the woman you do have over, what, an er? She's prettier? Really? Really? Really, all it takes—all it takes—is one critical, cantankerous, horrible woman. It doesn't. It doesn't. It, it doesn't matter. That that thing gets ugly very quick if, if you go that way. Or have you ever? Have you ever lost? Have, have you ever lost value on your husband because the guy down the road makes more money? Have you ever lost sight? Of that, so so we start comparing spouses. We start doing that, and and if you if you've ever been to like a women's meeting, all, all it takes is one woman. It's all it takes one woman talking up how awesome her husband is, and then everybody's got to pipe in, right? So so, so one woman. Well, all it takes is one woman. Oh my husband, he's got such a revelation of love of Christ. He loves me like Christ loves the church. He walks behind me and says nice things, and he puts rose petals out, and oh, he's just so awesome. And you're thinking, what? I married a New Zealand? Are you kidding me? I he he. My husband just cut his beer habit down to 24 a week. I'm counting that a win. What are you talking about? Right? Right? So we start comparing that. We we, we, we start comparing children. We lose lose value on our children. There's meta comparison about which moms are, are, are more there for their kids than the other mom. If you work at a school, you've seen this a lot where there's three moms whose husbands are slogging it somewhere, and so they could take the whole day off, and they, they're standing there, they're standing there, and they're comparing with each other about which mom is more there for the, for the kid than, than, than the other one, and then at the last minute, the single mom working three jobs, trying to put food on the table, shows up, and they look down their, their nose at her because, oh, you're not there for your kids like we're there for our kids because you have to do that thing called work, and then the single mom's like, yeah, but your husband secretly hates you because you're spending his money all day, and then there's all this stuff, there's, there's all this stuff going on, and it's, it's just... Violent, right? Or, 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 we, or we lose the value on our children by comparing them to one another, right? Look, can we just all admit we hate first grade birthday parties, right? Like, we hate first-grade birthday parties because you can't leave the kids, right? You, you have to actually go in and sit there because you can't leave all the first-graders with one mom. That's not right. So, so and, and if you're ever at a first-grade birthday party, all it takes is one. All it takes is one. All it takes is one mother bragging on how smart her kid is. That's all it takes. And then it's a one-upsmanship to the end of the whole thing. And that's all it takes because every mother thinks their kid is a genius. But let me help you out on this. They're not. They're just normal kids, right? So here's... Here's what happens. All it takes is one mother going, "Yeah, man, Susie really surprised me this week. I can't believe how smart she is. She really she got her math homework done so Fast, I'm so 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 impressed. Well, now the rest of the moms have to talk up their kid, or they're you know not standing up for them. So so the next mom goes, oh yeah yeah Billy boy he did what he's got his math homework done for the whole week. Amazing, right? Then the next one's like, oh yeah I don't know where Kent got this Kent man he figured out the square root of two is an infinite number. It is amazing sort of stuff, right? And, and here's and here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. Listen, first if you're going to do that, don't ever go first. That's first. Second second here's the problem. Let me let me let you in on this, okay? You live in New Zealand. So no matter how smart your kid is, there's already an Asian kid sitting in the corner who's figured out the Pythagorean theorem, right? And how it's going to affect how he's going to build his bunk beds, right? right? Good luck with that. And then in the middle of this panic, you sort of look around for your kid. And your kid is the one six-year-old in the room with a bucket on his head, beating, a head, beating his head against the wall. And, and, and the other moms are like, who's the bucket head kid? And you're like, I don't know. I don't know who's that. Right? And, and so you're, you're denying the existence of your own kid because he doesn't compare with the rest of them. And here's the thing. Here's the problem. There's a lot of problems. I mean, here's a big problem, right? <laughs> Do you know there's a lot of couples who would love to have the buckethead kid? They would think he's the best, but you know why? Because they can't. Or, or their, their kid is disabled. or They, they just, you've, you've lost the value of what you have by comparing him to the rest of the room. Why? He is what he is. Let him enjoy his bucket, right? (laughs) Listen, the Asian kid's going to outdo him. Don't worry, right? And he's going to outdo everybody else. It's only a matter of time. Listen, here's the thing. Why would we we devalue our children by comparing them? Envy, jealousy, and comparison allow us to rationalize violence even on our own kids. Or how about this one? How about spiritual comparison? Like, things like, why don't I see the things they see in the Bible? Like, man, that guy, he, has an, he, man, he says things that are obvious that are only obvious after he said it. Why didn't I think of that, right? Or, or leadership. Like, people who everything they touch turns to gold. Like, there's this guy, right? And um, you, you might have heard of him. He's from around this part of the world. His name's Brian Houston, right? And, and uh, if you heard of this guy, he's amazing, right? Here, here's the thing. No matter what he touches, turn, listen, you could tranquilize Brian Houston, drop him naked in Afghanistan, and he'd have a church of 20,000 by December. It's unbelievable, right? right? And, and, you, and you look at his life and you go, well, I think I love God as much, and I think I work hard, and I think, I think I'm nice. And I, Why does everything seem to work for that guy or Joel Osteen. How do you not like Joel Osteen? Joel Osteen is, is, is amazing. Joel Osteen, Brian Houston, Joyce Meyer. These guys have all, they, they've all forgotten more about what they'll do for God than I have, have ever done in my life. And I, and I honor that and I hope they win. But sometimes you look at their life and you go, wow, man, why doesn't that? Stephen Furtick grew up 15 minutes from me. And, and, and now he's got a church of, what, 30,000 in Charlotte? And, you know, when we were growing up, I thought, you know, I thought I was just as smart as him or whatever. But, but the truth of it is, is he is where he is and I am where I am. And if we're not careful, we get caught in that comparison trap even around spe- That's why some of the most nastiest violent verbal attacks are rooted in envy. That, that's why these people on the Internet, these faceless cowards writing things about people, people who aren't doing anything for the cause of Christ, tearing down other people. Why? Envy envy. Or or, or next one, you also have, hit that next slide, Uh, you have lifestyle, you know, shows like MTV Cribs, right? Years, 20 years ago, it was Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, right? MTV Cribs is a show, in case you don't know, it's a show that shows you how celebrities live, what their house. So they'll take you to Shaquille O'Neal's house, and they'll say, look, Shaquille O'Neal has a 44,000 square foot home with a 12-car garage, Ooh, if only you worked hard enough, maybe one day you could live like this. Ah, uh, one, no, you're not seven foot two. You're not two hundred. You're not three hundred forty pounds, and you don't have a thirty nine inch vertical leap. No, no, you're you're not you're not going to be Shaq. And really, would you really want to? Do you really want to live in a forty four thousand square foot home? Who would clean it? One, that's one. Two, if you had a forty four thousand square foot home, there'd be rooms you would never walk in. Are you kidding me? You'd lay there at night and hear every noise. Like, are you kidding me? Like, do we really want what they have? It's envy. It's envy. Workplace. Believing the myth that the next job will have less envy than this one. Or when people leave churches, I'm leaving this church. Why? It's too political. Right. And you're going to go where? You're going to go where there's no people and no agendas and no passions and no, really? Good luck with that. Right? Right? So we, so what happens is, is, is we start believing that the grass is greener, and when we believe the grass is greener, it allows us to justify being violent against the people we think are eating the greener grass, and it's just not true. And, and from the beginning, from Genesis 4, God says, you have to deal with this or it will eat you alive. It will eat you alive. You'll lose sight of what you have. So you might be thinking, Shane, you know what? Decent sermon, mildly entertaining, fairly funny, but honestly, I'd love to beat envy in my life, but you haven't given me one way to do it. You've just told me how bad it was and how damaging it could be. Well, uh, let me me give you a couple of ideas on some very practical ways to beat envy, because listen, I believe in the power of prayer, but I don't think prayer is the solution for this. And the reason is is that it just rears its head too much. Envy's not like a one-time, one-off thing that you can just get prayer for and then you're cured forever. I don't think it works like that. So so I think we have to develop some heart disciplines that allow us to deal with it. So let me give you a couple things that I think can really help us in a very practical way. Next one. One, is realizing envy is rooted in how we see ourselves, never about what the other person has. Would you really feel better about yourself if you got the promotion? If you got the new car, the new shirt. Listen, I hope you all drive very nice cars. And a nice car is a nice thing to have. But if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. The promotion, if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. People say, oh, Shane, I just want to be married. Oh, I'm single. I want to be married. I want to be married. Look, if you want to be married, God bless you. Please get married. But here's the deal, right? Here's the deal, right? There is no such thing as a happy marriage that was forged between two miserable single people, right? Right? <laughs> right? Oh, man, we hated being single, but we got married and it fixed everything. No, what? Marriage doesn't solve problems. Marriage creates problems, right? And so, it's a, listen, listen, a good, a good spouse is a good thing to have, but if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with them. Never, ever, ever. A good spouse is a great thing to have. A, A bad spouse, you'd rather a comet come to earth to bring you sweet, no, no, you don't want that, right? Right? If you're not enough without these things, you'll never be enough with uh, these things. Uh, let, let's say it this way: the simplest gospel message is that you were loved while you were imperfect, and before you realized any of the potentials of your life, that, that that your worth was determined before you did or attained anything. So, those are some two realizations. But let me give you some real practical ways to handle envy when you feel envy rising up in you, which we all will. When you feel that rising up in you, like uh, even, like I know this is going to surprise you, but even in like Christian conferences, in the green rooms at Christian conferences, it is one big comparison fest. It's, hey, who's got the biggest church? Who's got the most numbers? Who's, who's bringing in the most money? Who's doing the most? And before you know it, you can't even be yourself. It just becomes one big escalation that we do not need. Everybody will face this. So what do we do when we feel that green thing starting to come up in us? What do we do when we feel that envy rising up? What do we do when we, when we start to justify violence because someone else has something better than us? Let, let, let me give you a couple of things. One, gratitude for what's in your present now will break the power of envy. Now, here's, here's what is, there's a way in this that I could say something that's true, but it's not helpful. Here's something that's true. Every breath you take is a gift from God. Is that true? Yes, it is. So everybody take a deep breath. Okay, now that's a gift from God. And there's a way I could say, because every breath you take is a gift from God, you should be thankful for every breath you take. Now, is that true? Yes, it is. Is that helpful? Not really. Right? So if I said, here's here's how you break envy. Every time you breathe you say thank you to God for that breath, right? That's not helpful. And and it's the last thing we really want to do. We don't want to create a culture of people walking through New World going, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, right? Right, because, and, and, and by the way, if you're doing that, stop. That's flipping weird, okay? It's not helpful. But here's what is helpful, and here's what is doable. What if you set aside 10 times a day for 10 seconds? It's 100 seconds. 10 times a day for 10 seconds, what if you stopped and you were thankful for what is in your now? And let me, let me define that. Never looking in the past and never looking in the future. Just 10 seconds for what is in your life right now. Let me, let me ask it this way. If God never did one more thing for you, would he owe you anything? Like if you stood before God and you said, what'd you ever do for me, God? And God said, well, I died for you, and I let you be born in New Zealand. Fair enough. God let you be born in one of the top five greatest nations on this planet. You live in a country with electricity, clean running water, machines that do washing, separate machines that do drying. You have stores that sell prepackaged food for you. You could drive motor cars on paved roads to stores that prepare food you. What more do you want God to do for you? See, sometimes when we look at somebody else's field, we lose sight of what's in our field. And the cure for that is just becoming aware and thankful for what's in our field. If God never added, and this is hard for faith culture, right? Because faith culture says we need to be thanking God for what he is going to do. Lord, I thank you for this blessing that's coming. And you know what? There's a place for that, but not here, not this. To beat envy, we have to take 10 seconds, 10 times a day, And be thankful for what's in our now if God never added anything to it. What would be in your now if God never added anything to it? Well, I don't know. I have a hand that works. It's pretty good. Hey, my elbow. It works. If my elbow didn't work, I'd miss it. Right? Have you ever jammed your thumb like you hurt it real bad? And then once you jam your thumb, you ever notice how much your thumb hits stuff? And you're like, does my thumb hit things all the time like this? Like, my goodness. Like, you have a thumb that works. You have feet. You know, right now, most of us in the room can feel our feet on the ground. There's some people who can't. Hey, I don't have a chemotherapy appointment today. That's a good one. Hey, I have friends that love me, I have family that loves me. I don't have a chemotherapy appointment. I live in one of the greatest nations on earth. I live in a country where laws protect the weak against the strong. I don't have to worry about warlords kidnapping my children and terrorizing my wife. I don't have to worry about those kind of things because I live in New Zealand, baby. That's right. Right? Right? I live in a country that has the greatest rugby union team in the history of the world. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can feel different parts of my body working. I'm not worried about being tortured for Christ. We don't have to worry about an army coming in right now and killing us all for our faith. Boy, we have a lot to be thankful. And when you out loud give thanks for what's in your now, it can break the power of envy in your life. Let's say it this way, another way. Practicing kindness. Just simply doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Like if I had a list of your mistakes, would you want me judging your whole life based on it? No. So why do we do that to anybody else? Why would you ever go into a public forum and point out someone else's mistakes. It is literally the violation of the most basic thing Jesus taught us about how to live, which is doing unto others as we would have them doing to you. If someone knew about a big mistake you made, would you want them putting it on the internet? No. So we should never do that. Here's another way to beat envy. 10 seconds, 10 times a day, be thankful for what's in your now, and then leave that 10 seconds determined to do something for someone who can do nothing in return for you, and watch what will happen to envy in your life. To, be, to participate in the people who don't have as much as us. Become aware of the fields of the people who have less than us. It will destroy envy in our life. Last one is this. If envy is a practice of the heart, then so is the solution. Practicing kindness and gratitude in the secret place of our imagination can set us free from envy. 10 seconds, 10 times a day. Lord, this is what I'm thankful for because this is in my now. And Holy Spirit, would you speak to my heart right now about somebody else's life I could make better? I want to just build an imagination about me making somebody else's life better. I want to build an imagination about the kindness and compassion of God coming out. I want, I want to make other people's lives better. If we take 10 seconds 10 times a day and be thankful for what's in our now, and we build a disciplined imagination about making other people's lives better, specifically people who have less than us, then it will break the power of envy in our life, and we can break that comparison trap. We can break the power of that thing that is literally crouching at the door and desires to eat us alive. This is not something that's innocuous. This is something Jesus wants you set free from. He wants you to look in and up instead of left and right to get your value. May all of you be set free from the land of Ur. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you and we honor you. We proclaim your king. There's none like you. Lord, would you give us the courage to see things different, the irresistible urge to respond to what we see? Why don't you just right now pray that prayer. Lord, give me the courage to see things different, the irresistible urge to respond to what I see. Why why don't right now, for the next 10 seconds, just underneath your breath, not in a way that points you out, underneath your breath, I want you to say thank you to the Lord for three things that are in your now, your right now, without God adding anything to your life, three things you're thankful for right now. And I just want you to express that gratitude to him over the next 10, 15 seconds. Maybe you're here today and you've never received what Jesus did for you before the foundation of the world. And I would would urge you to respond to Jesus today. If you're here today and you've never received what Jesus did for you before the foundation of the world, I want to give you a chance to respond. If you need something to say, you can say something like this. Lord Jesus, I have no hope. I'm choosing to trust your version of my story instead of the one I've written for myself. I'm choosing to trust that the version of my story that you've written for me is better than the one I would ever write for myself, and I'm giving my life to that. I'm submitting my life to that, and I'm asking you to teach me how to live. Partner partner me with great people that can help me um, partner with you to bring your kingdom here. Lord, would you set us free this morning from envy, jealousy, and comparison? Would you forgive us for rationalizing doing harm to others and devaluing people? based on comparing them to other people. May we get our value from looking in and up instead of right and left. Deliver us, Lord Jesus, from the land of Ur. Amen. Amen. Look this way. Thanks so much for being part of your day. I hope that was a real blessing to you, but more than anything, I hope it was a challenge for us to be thankful for what's in our now and overcome envy in our life. Grace and peace. God bless.